Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, today we're going to have a Hill briefing on uh, what role, if any, tax increases or revenue enhancements should, uh, should be in the whole debt limit uh, negotiations. Uh, we're taking the unusual step of having a debate here. We usually don't do debates on our Hill briefing, so it be a little bit different format. It should be uh, particularly entertaining. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, we have rigged this in advance to make sure that Cato does win. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which is actually going to be very difficult considering who we have speaking at Cato today, uh, Dan Mitchell. I don't think he's won anything in his entire life, but we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, in any event, what I'm, what I'm going to do is just go ahead and introduce both speakers right off the bat, and then we'll give them each 10 minutes, and then we'll turn it over to you to, to ask some questions and uh, just go from there. So first up is going to be Dan Mitchell. He's uh, one of the top uh, experts on tax reform and supply-side economics in D.C. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation. He's also served as an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and on the Senate Finance Committee. And uh, way back when, he served on the 1988 Bush Quail Transition Team and was Director of Tax and Budget Policy Studies at Citizens for a Sound Economy. Dan will be followed by Kevin Williamson. Uh, Kevin is a deputy managing editor at National Review. He also writes their uh, NRO's Exchequer blog, where he uh, blogs about debt and deficits. He also published a book just a couple months ago, early this year, called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. And that's available at fine bookstores everywhere. With that, I'll turn things... What's that? Uh, and with that, I'll turn things over to Dan. Well, thank you, Brandon. I guess uh, I did win least likely to succeed in high school, so I have won something. Uh, but hopefully I'll augment that with uh, today's debate performance. Uh, in some sense, this is a bit of a Potemkin Village debate, because I'm sure if Kevin and I sat in a room designed what the federal government should look like, we probably would come up with very similar answers. But it's a real debate in the sense that we have important tactical and strategic issues that we have to figure out uh, as we deal with the real world of politics and try to figure out where we're going to go. In my brief remarks, I'm going to focus on three things. The theoretical, the hypothetical, and the real world. The theoretical, in some sense, is where there's no debate. Because as I just said, I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin and I both agreed that we should have a much, much smaller federal government, and if we had a much, much smaller federal government, and for most of our nation's history, the federal government only consumed about 3% of GDP, we obviously wouldn't need to raise taxes. Indeed, we could dramatically reduce taxes. If we had the kind of federal government our founding fathers envisioned, we probably wouldn't need any broad-based tax whatsoever. And indeed, it wasn't until that dark day in 1913 uh, that the income taxes we know it today uh, got its foothold in America. So theoretical, I don't think there's really a debate. Then let's look at the hypothetical. And on the hypothetical, I'm actually going to move a little bit in Kevin's direction. Later today, Senator Coburn is going to be proposing a big budget plan. Supposedly, it's going to have $9 trillion or something like that of deficit reduction, including $8 trillion of so-called spending cuts. Now, I suppose I should stop for a second here and explain uh, to all of you, you probably know it already, that when Washington talks about spending cuts, that's completely different than how people think about it in the real world. In Washington, if you increase spending at 4% instead of 6%, that's called a spending cut. 
So when they're talking about $8 trillion of spending cuts, in reality, government probably gets bigger every year. But it does get bigger at a much slower rate, much slower rate than if you just left it on autopilot. But anyhow, Senator Coburn's going to put together this plan. Supposedly, it's going to have $1 trillion of tax increases. But the tax increases are going to be relatively benign, relatively non-destructive ways of raising revenue uh, by getting rid of some of the loopholes and inefficiencies in the tax code. So if somebody held a gun to my head and said, Dan, if you have to raise taxes by a trillion dollars, what would be your way of doing it? I would say, yes, let me get Senator Coburn's proposal and I'll take that because he's not raising taxes in a terribly destructive fashion, and at least he's getting something on the spending side of the ledger. And given the current configuration of our political system, with Harry Reid controlling the Senate and Obama in the White House, if we actually got something like Senator Coburn's proposal, that would be a net plus for freedom in our country. So under that hypothetical, I would actually move in Kevin's direction. So we've covered the theoretical, we covered the hypothetical, but now let me get to my main point, which is that in the real world, the hypothetical doesn't matter and the theoretical doesn't matter. My major concern about whether or not the no tax hike pledge is something worth saving, and I think it is, my main concern is that the moment you put taxes on the table, the entire debate shifts in a very unfriendly direction. There is no way we would ever get anything close to what Senator Coburn is talking about. Instead, the moment you put taxes on the table, you're probably gravitating towards something like the 1990 budget deal. Uh, you'd almost certainly, right away, begin to hear calls that, well, it has to be a 50-50 deal. 50% tax increases, 50% spending cuts, and again, the spending cuts are not real spending cuts. They're off the baseline. And once you do that, not only do you have taxes, instead of being $1 trillion out of $9 trillion, they'd be $2 trillion out of $4 trillion or something like that. Don't forget that a lot of the so-called spending savings would be backdoor tax increases. Uh, so-called user fees count as negative spending. So if you do things like uh, requiring higher co-pays, require higher, higher payments for Fannie and Freddie loans, or even relatively benign things like a, a higher admission fee to, to go to a Yellowstone Park or something like that, all those things count as negative spending under the weird budget conventions we have in Washington. Not to mention the fact that any so-called interest savings would be counted as, uh, as, so, as spending cuts, when in reality that's just an a, a after effect of doing whatever you're doing to other fiscal policies. So instead of having $1 for $1, we'd probably actually have 2 or $3 of higher revenue for every $1 of spending cuts. And again, that even assumes that the spending cuts are real, or perhaps more relevant, it assumes that the so-called spending cuts would actually happen. Ronald Reagan used to joke years after the 1982 TEFRA deal that he was still waiting for the $3 of spending cuts for every dollar of tax increases he let go through the door. Of course, he never received those. 1990 was even worse because as part of the deal where Bush broke his no new taxes pledge, he actually agreed to increase the baseline discretionary spending levels. Of course, there were some promises of entitlement savings that never really materialized. So in the real world of Washington, not 
the theoretical package uh, or the hypothetical package that Tom Coburn has put together, but in the real world of Washington, putting taxes on the table is going to simply be akin to putting blood in the water with hungry sharks around. It will be a substitute for the fiscal discipline that we need. Now let me go ahead and close because I'm already getting to the end of my 10 minutes. Let me go ahead and close by just saying something about where we are and what we should do if we want to have the balanced approach that President Obama keeps demanding. If you look at the historical average from the end of World War II until say 2010, on average, we had federal revenues a bit under 18% of GDP and federal spending consuming a bit under 20% of GDP. So our long run average was to have deficits of about 2% of GDP. Well, the president says we wanna have a balanced approach to dealing with this problem. Where are spending and revenue today? Well, spending is 24 to 25% of GDP and revenue is down around 15% of GDP. But we're in the middle of an economic week period. And if you sort of move forward five or 10 years to see what happens as the economy theoretically knock on wood recovers, what you see under both the CBO and OMB baseline estimates is that revenues are gonna climb above 18% of GDP, even if you make the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts permanent, whereas spending is going to plateau and hover around 24% of GDP. 24% of GDP. So if we want a balanced approach, we should require spending and revenue to each contribute their share to, how, to the long-run average. Well, if revenues have a long-run average of a bit under 18% of GDP, and under both the OMB and CBO baselines, they're gonna be more than 18% of GDP, then 0% of our long-run and medium-run fiscal problem is because of inadequate revenue. But we know that historical spending was about 20% of GDP, and now it's going to be around 24% of GDP. And by the way, it's going to get much, much worse as the baby boom generation retires. If you look at the CBO long-run budget forecast, you're looking at America basically becoming another Greece or Portugal. So what we know for sure is that 100% plus of our medium-run and long-run fiscal problems is because spending has climbed above its long-run average and 0% of our long-run fiscal problem is because of revenue. So if in the real world, the problem is that spending has grown and in the real world, we know that putting taxes on the table is simply going to give us another cluster something like we got with Bush's 1990 budget deal, why would we want to do that? Theoretically, we know government should be smaller. Hypothetically, we know that Senator Coburn's idea might be very good compared to what will happen today or sometime before August 2nd, but it's not going to happen. In the real world, higher taxes are simply a recipe for higher spending. Thank you. Federal government at 3% of GDP? Well, I'm feeling in a moderate mood today. Communist. Uh, Real world, I guess we should start with that. Washington is in the real world. Uh, But the real world will come here when treasuries get downgraded to 2A. Uh, Every financial institution in the world that has a statutory obligation to hold AAA bonds dumps them. The world financial system collapses and lights go off. That's the alternative, that's where we're headed. Um, That's the bad news. 
In the real world, does the no tax pledge actually act to constrain the growth of government? Did you all take the train to work this morning? It's busy, wasn't it? A lot of business going on out there and in here and in this building. In any sane world, a malarial swamp like Washington, D.C. would be abandoned this time of year, but it's not. It's full of people doing work. Uh, if you go back and look at federal spending as a share of GDP, it goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up every year, uh, pretty much no matter what. So if the no-tax pledge is acting as a break on the growth of government, it's hard as hell to see any evidence for its being successful. Um, now, granted, it's not the only uh, blunt arrow in the quiver. There are lots of those. There are lots of promises people make and uh, policies that people on the right and in the free market community have pursued that have not actually been effective. And there's good reason for that, and the main reason is you know, the other side is selling free stuff, which makes it easier. So, no, it doesn't look like the free tax or the uh, no-tax pledge has, has done anything to put uh, Leviathan on a leech. And, uh, but I'll go beyond that, beyond being uh, just not a practical measure. I will argue that it's a, a pledge that actually has no intellectual content for the simple fact that when you're in conditions of deficit spending, promising you're not going to have new taxes is arithmetically meaningless. Uh, when there's a dollar in spending, there's going to be a dollar in taxes. Maybe a dollar in taxes today, might be a dollar in taxes 30 years from now when the bond comes due with interest. But you don't just get free money. Stuff doesn't come from nowhere. And you would think that um, those of us in the free market world uh, who, who really apply market choice models to all sorts of other policy failures would understand this. You look at health care, what's the problem with health care? Well, there's a third-party payer problem, right? Everyone consumes infinite amounts of health care without paying any attention to the cost because they're not paying for it out of pocket. Government financing works precisely the same way. Uh, Uncle Sam doesn't need to go straight to the taxpayers anymore and get money out of their pocket to do what he wants to do. He can go to the capital markets for now. Uh, given another six months, that might not be the case. But for the last 40 years, I've been able to go to the capital markets, borrow money at very reasonable rates. And uh, right now we're funding about half of our spending through uh, borrowing, through deficit spending. And the neat trick about that is once you've funded something through borrowing, interest on the debt and debt service becomes automatic, right? Because uh, it's, it's the bill that goes off the door by itself. It's not something you actually have to separately appropriate for. So you can take all your discretionary stuff, all your crap for ethanol and uh, the Small Business Administration and every other piece of criminal fraud uh, perpetuated by the city, and you convert it into essentially debt service. That's as the way the financing works. So it hasn't made our politics any more frugal. It's made our politics cowardly. And it's created all sorts of bad incentives that, um, that uh, encourage more and more growth and more and more debt. And the thing that I think people always get wrong is we, we hang up on this debate about taxes. Taxes really don't matter all that much. I mean, yes, your tax system matters and your overall tax level matters. But what ultimately determines your level of taxes in the long term is your level of spending. Um, if you look at the United States government across all levels, federal, state, and local, U.S. government's about as big as Canadian government. Uh, we spend something like 33% of GDP. They spend something like 37 if you add them all up. The difference is they have much higher tax burden than we do. Um, on the other hand, they've cut their national debt in half in real terms in the last 15 years. They've been running mostly small surpluses or tiny little deficits uh, for the last 15 years or so. Their economy is currently growing twice as fast as ours. Uh, their unemployment rate during the last recession never got as high as ours is right now. Uh, it peaked years ago and has, uh, has come down quickly since then. 
So what that makes me conclude is that uh, sure taxes matter and tax levels matter, but responsibility matters as well. And they're not running this, you know, kamikaze, shining path, starve the beast, let's see if we can bring the whole thing down through a cutting revenue off model of government that we are. You know, there is a real tendency in the conservative movement to, uh, to sort of stomp one's feet and say, well, we're just not going to give you any more money and you have to stop doing stuff. But then we don't actually make them stop doing stuff. Uh, and they keep spending, they keep spending, we keep running up debts. I mean, you know, our, our real national debt right now, if you add up the federal, state, local, I mean, all the debts of governments in this country put together, plus the uh, liabilities for the entitlements, is uh, it's a little more than two times the money supply on the planet. All the money in the world, times two. Uh, it's more than the GDP of the human race, uh, more than the annual economic output of our species and civilization. It's, it's an absurdly large swollen number that it's so large that actually it ends up being sort of meaningless. I mean, there's no way to really scale it and understand it. But what that means is that uh, these promises that have been made are not going to happen. And one of the ways to balance the books, of course, is to cut down spending radically, which I would like to. Uh, I think, you know, we definitely do both agree on that. In fact, I, I probably would be willing to go a lot further than, than most people on the right would on those things. But um, in the short term, in the medium term, the debt that we're running and the imbalances that it brings, not only to our own economy, but to the global economy and the risk that it loads up onto our balance sheet is a much bigger threat to not just our economic well health, but social order, than is a higher tax burden. Uh, you know, we're talking about taking the top marginal rate from, you know, 34% to 38% or from 35 to 41. And those numbers matter. Of course they matter. They matter a lot. Although the best models for tax reform, I think, are like the ones from the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which actually lower the tax rates but get rid of enough exclusions that it comes out to be a net tax increase. But look, if our tax rates go up 5% or 6%, I don't want them to, obviously. Uh, not that I make enough money for it to matter, but that's you know a theoretical problem. If that happens, if those taxes go up a little bit, yeah, there's going to be some cost in terms of growth. There's going to be some cost in terms of you know more assets being uh, being fed to a Leviathan. But it is not going to be the sort of thing that sparks a worldwide financial calamity. Uh, downgraded Treasury bills will do that. Uh, the ultimate insolvency of the U.S. government will do that. And when I talk about the lights going off, I'm talking about that literally. I'm talking about utility failures, such things. Uh, if you get to the point where we're monetizing our debt at the level that we're going to have to, to uh, even begin to make these payments, you're, you know, you're inviting 400, 500% inflation. You're talking about, you know, financial collapse if you don't do something about it. Those are your alternatives. And if the, uh, if the model for moving ahead makes us look more like, God forbid, Canada or a freer country like Australia or New Zealand, uh, can live with that. It's not going to be the worst thing in the world. Now, uh, the trick, though, is to do tax reform in such a way that the appropriators have to inflict the pain when they're doing the appropriation. As long as there's this long disconnect, this 30-year lag between the time a dollar gets spent and a dollar gets collected in taxes, then, you know, your jackasses in Washington will always have a really, really good incentive to spend the money now and let someone else collect the taxes later. Uh, that's why, even though I think it's, um, it's a clumsy instrument, a balanced budget amendment is probably almost certainly essential, uh, certainly more robust uh, fiscal reforms of the sort that, you know, we tried in the 80s with uh, Graham uh, Rudman and all the rest of that, which didn't really quite work out. Well, actually, the problem with Graham Rudman is it did work. And when it started working, of course, they repealed it because they couldn't have that. So it probably will take something like a constitutional amendment. But what we've done, essentially, is uh, we behaved in the same way a lot of these really badly run investment firms did. 
we're taking future gains uh, while leveraging ourselves up and loading our balance sheet up with risk that we don't really understand. Um, you've seen big recessions in countries like countries in Asia and Argentina, South America, things like that. You don't know what a real financial meltdown looks like in a country that accounts for 22% of the world's GDP. Uh, no one knows how much debt our economy can really carry. No one knows what the long-term consequences of that are going to be and what that's going to shake out like. And the truth is you don't want to know. And the real debate about the debt limit, and I'll close with this, is that the statutory debt limit, while it's something that I care about, is, is kind of an abstraction. But out there, there's a real debt limit, too. There's a point at which the markets will stop loaning us money, at least at these ridiculous low rates they've been loaning us to for the last several years. You know, if our uh, debt service interest rates return to their historical average, we'll be spending $650 billion a year on, on debt service alone, something like that. We'll have, you know, a Pentagon-sized hole in the budget. There's no way that uh, the current model stays this way forever. And uh, the level of taxation, while certainly of, of not uh, inconsequential importance, is really a question of whether we tax ourselves or we tax people in the future who don't get a vote on it. And I think that's probably immoral. Uh, I do believe in no taxation without representation, including intertemporal representation. So, um, but yeah, we're at, a, we're at a bad point. We have to do something about it. And worrying about 38 versus 35 on the top marginal rate, while certainly the Lord's work for some people, my friends from ATR are here sitting in the front row, I notice. Extra credit for this? Um, the uh, the uh, consequences of not getting this right, not getting it right very soon, and I think probably within two years at the most would be my guess, although I don't really have the expertise to say on that. It's just kind of a seat-of-the-pants guess. Um, you're talking about, you know, real, real disruption and not just economic disruption. So thank you.